Chris Santella loves what it feels like when you're fishing in a wild river and suddenly there's a tug on your line. You wait for that grab of the fly and, and it's like electricity going up your arm and you don't forget that and you really get to crave it. Coming up, discover some of the world's best places to go fly fishing. It's still a tradition in much of Spain to leave a little downtime in your schedule after lunch. Yes, if we can. If we can, we can take a smooth siesta. And then after that, we are ready for a crazy fiesta. We'll get expert advice for planning the perfect getaway to Spain. And once Nikos Hajikostas left his native Cyprus and started to travel full-time, he realized that other countries just didn't seem so foreign anymore. We own every lake, every mountain, every culture. The pyramid belongs to us. The Acropolis belongs to us. All these things belong to us, but we forget this. Let's explore our world together in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. I want you to meet a traveler today whose adventures not only took him across the world, but radically changed how he saw his place in it. Nikos Hadjikostas explains why we all really are citizens of the world a little later in the hour ahead. And guides from Spain will update us in a bit on their views of what it means to be part of the European Union. They'll also take your calls to help plan a memorable trip to Spain. Let's open the hour with a look at a sport that inspires a unique kind of passion and gets you into some of the world's most beautiful waterways. Fly fishing has become a favorite of many an overstressed urbanite. It offers a refuge in the quiet places of the great outdoors while testing your skills at outwitting a wily fish. Chris Santella's 50 Places Recreation Guides started with fly fishing, and now he covers a dozen other activities, such as paddling, camping, cycling, golfing, and even snowboarding. But his number one passion remains fly fishing. Chris, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Rick. Thanks. What is it about fly fishing that those who know it and love it are so passionate about? I've thought about this a lot, oftentimes when I'm out on the river, and I think that people come at it from a a lot of different directions. First, I think there's the chance to be out in nature in a quiet and beautiful place. There's an old saying that trout don't live in ugly places and neither do bonefish or tarpon or Atlantic salmon. So you're you're usually in pretty pristine places that can support these uh, fish species. I think there's something about, especially if you're river fishing, about being in the water. I don't mean to sound cliche, but... There is something about the oneness of of being with the river and that sense of flow. I drive a lot over mountains and past beautiful rivers in Europe and in the United States, and I see a lot of people with hip boots on standing thigh-deep in in the river, and there is something uh, special about that, I would imagine. Yeah, there is a feeling of being in the moment and in the flow of life. I mean, we often use rivers as a metaphor for a flow of life and time passing, and it's never the same water that you're standing in. And I think there is something profound, perhaps subliminal about that, that has an appeal. Mm -hmm. There is an analytic side of, of fly fishing. I think it has appeal to people, the whole idea of trying to determine what the fish are eating at a given time and then trying to either look in your fly box and find the the right fly that seems to match the kind of bugs that the trout might be eating. Or I know some friends will bring a fly tying vise and some feathers and, and hair and hooks to the side of the stream. And if they don't have what the right bug is at the time or the right fly, they will go and tie it up on the spot and hope that they're going to make that match. Matching the hatch is the, the term that uh, a writer named Ernie Schwiebert came up with years ago. 
hatch being the kind of insect that is uh, occurring okay. on the river at that time. But just having the arsenal and matching the fly with the others that are being eaten, that's probably integral to being a successful fly fisher. And very important, and you'll find some anglers that are, you know, better equipped than others. I've been out with some friends who will have literally 500 or 1,000 flies. I usually have one or two boxes and, and hope that... Uh, what I have will cover things 90% of the time, but there's always 10% that doesn't mm-hmm. work. And One fly could work great this morning, and another fly would work great in the same hole this afternoon. Exactly, because what happens on many river systems is you will have different sorts of insects emerging, coming out of the river or settling down upon the river at different times of the day. You might have mayflies that are popping up from the bottom of the river as nymphs and then turning into adult bugs and being on the surface in the morning. And that might be a white insect the size of your pinky nail. And then in the afternoon, as it gets warmer, the grasshoppers might become active and the wind may be blowing them into the river and they are green and yellow and they're the size of your thumb. It's sort of a a battle going on. What are they eating? It is. It's man versus versus nature. You know, of any outdoor activity out there, I think... Fly fishing must have had more impact by a certain movie than any other. You just call it uh, among <laughs> fly fishers the movie. Of course, it's a river runs through it. And when I think of that, you get the image of casting and what a ballet it is in the middle of nature and the rhythm and the art of that. Is that just showing off? Is that just fun? Or how is that so important? I often find people when I'm doing talks or signing books that are very intimidated about getting involved in fly fishing because they think, I'm not going to be able to cast at 90 feet like Brad Pitt did Mm -hmm. or Jason Borger did. That was the casting double. Uh, And I say, well, you shouldn't be concerned because most of your trout fishing, at least, occurs within 20 feet or maybe 30 feet. What you're saying is it matters, but you don't need to be able to do that in order to enjoy fly fishing. Not at all. And and most situations don't require that sort of Uh uh, very long cast. Being able to throw it a, a long way can be helpful in some situations, but in many situations, being able to cast it accurately 20 feet Ah. is going to probably help you catch more fish. (laughs) A lot of the the nuance of it is being able to control what the fly is doing once it's in the water. If the current catches the fly line or the leader, which is the piece of nylon that attaches the Mm -hmm. fly to the fly line, it makes it whip through the water, moving it at an unnatural speed, and the fish can see that. But you can control the line by doing something called mending, putting the line upstream, and that can control the speed oh, okay. that the fly goes and make make it look like it's floating more naturally. A little technique there. All right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Chris Santella. His book is Why I Fly Fish. And Chris, the book is, uh, it shows your love of fly fishing and your passion for this and expertise in it, but it's essentially a collection of articles and stories from great anglers, passionate anglers, and it's fun to to get their philosophy about it. I mean, Lisa Cutter wrote a, a little piece, and she's talking about getting away from the chatter in your mind and talks about the lakes of the High Sierra. Somebody else uh, had this quote that apparently is famous among fly fishers, God does not subtract from the allotted span of a man's life with the hours spent in fishing. And then you added, I think fly fishing is even better. Those are so fun to get a little insight into this whole culture and the camaraderie of fly fishing. Right. You know, people find solace in it for many different reasons. I had the chance to speak with Henry Winkler, for example, very, very kind man. And he was saying that 
he felt he had some physical awkwardness when he was younger and didn't fit in with sports. And he came to fly fishing a little bit later in life because it gave him a little more confidence in his physicality. You interviewed all of these people, and you have a companion book, 50 Places to Fly Fish Before You Die. Of all these places, what are a couple of your favorites that you'd like to share with people who might be travelers who go to Iceland and stand under a waterfall or uh, you know, go to Crater Lake? or What is some of the most remarkable and memorable fly fishing opportunities, uh, if you want to incorporate that into your travel planning? One place that I've, I've been recently that is remarkable for how remote it is and, and really unspoiled. It is a place called the Panoi River that's on the Kola Peninsula of Russia. So that's the little, it's the northwesternmost part of Russia, up above the Arctic Circle, about six, seven hundred miles northeast of Helsinki would be a, a way to think of it. Mm-hmm. And the quarry there is Atlantic salmon. And in many places in the world where Atlantic salmon used to be prevalent, Their numbers have been greatly mitigated, if not destroyed, by industrialization and overdevelopment. But here's a place that partially because there are no roads, partially because there was a lot of Russian military activity on the Kola Peninsula, that part of the world never got any population, never got settled. So you get flown in by a big Mi-8 helicopter, Mm. which is not quite the luxurious helicopter that you might use heliskiing. (laughs) drop down in the middle of the tundra and they've erected this beautiful little village there. That's the only way I can describe it. There are 40 permanent structures and a fleet of boats and each day you go out on the river and you're using two-handed fly rods called spay rods to cast flies for Atlantic salmon. And the Atlantic salmon can be anywhere from 8 to 30 pounds and when they take the fly it feels like you've hooked into a freight train and they will clear three or four feet out of the water. It's quite an exciting experience. Chris Santella has written a dozen best-selling books about outdoor adventures in his 50 Places series. One of his titles collects the thoughts of passionate anglers on why I fly fish, and their favorite fishing places are covered in 50 More Places to Fly Fish Before You Die. You'll also see Chris's byline in major sport fishing publications. We have links to his books in this week's Travel with Rick Steves show details. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. One thing about fly fishing, because I've salmon fished quite a bit, and you have so much tackle that gets between you and the fish when you have certain kind of fishing, but when you are fly fishing, there's no better way to be close to the fish in that in that wonderful struggle. You feel every every shake of the head and and every lunge and and I think that again is that's one of the other very primal appeals of of the sport to feel that tug there's a saying that here among steelhead anglers a lot here in the Pacific Northwest the tug is the drug and when you're steelhead fishing you may not hook many fish in the course of a day or even a week but you wait for that grab of the fly and it's like electricity going up your arm and you don't forget that and you really get to crave it I would imagine it's mostly catch and release, but there are some places I learned by reading through your book that uh, there's more than enough fish and and they actually want you to catch and eat them. There certainly are some venues where certain species are considered invasive species and and they do encourage you to harvest those fish to reduce those numbers so that the endemic fish can come back. I generally practice catch and release myself. It's For me, it's about the sport. Sure. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Chris Santella, And Chris has written a book called Why I Fly Fish and 50 Places to Fly Fish Before You Die. Chris, you're from Portland and you love fly fishing. Let's just close off with 
if you were going to take me to your favorite place in Oregon State for fly fishing, where would we go and what would be so good about it? All right, here's what would happen. I would come by your hotel, Rick, either at about 3.30 a.m. or 3 p.m. It would be a September day, and we would drive east on Interstate 84 to the Deschutes River, and I would put a 12-foot, 6-inch spay rod in your hand, and we would hike up the river from near where it goes into the Columbia, and we would wade out into the river to see if we could catch a summer steelhead, and the sun would be high above the, the canyons of the Deschutes, but as we're fishing, it would start to sink lower and lower, and as there's less light on the water, the fish are more likely to take the fly, and hopefully we would end the day with a fish catapulting out in the middle of the river. Then we would drive back to Portland, but we'd stop in Hood River at Double Mountain and have a hop lava IPA and one of their heirloom tomato pizzas, and we would discuss the wonderful experience we just had. Sign me up. Chris Santella, thanks so much for sharing with us a little insight into why so many people love to fly fish. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Rick. We'll look at how traveling abroad can change your view of the world in just a bit. Up next, Guides from Spain take your calls at 877-333-7425 to help us better understand their country and to help you plan a great Iberian getaway. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Spain offers its visitors an amazing variety. The wealth that came with colonizing the New World has left us with some magnificent historical sites to include on our agenda today. Yet Spain also offers a thoroughly modern scene with lively arts, state-of-the-art transportation, inventive cuisine, and one of the sunniest climates on the continent. To help you plan a getaway to Spain, we're joined today by tour guides Federico Garcia Barroso and Jorge Roman from Madrid and Francesco Gloria from Pamplona. They specialize in showing visitors the best of their country, and they'll take your calls in just a minute at 877-333-7425. Federico, Jorge, Francisco, welcome. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. So the news in Europe these days is EU-related, the European Union, and every country in Europe uh, gives up sovereignty to be part of a meaningful union. If you don't give up sovereignty, there's no real union. What does Spain give up to be part of the union, and what does it get out of that that makes giving up something a good idea? Jorge? If you think in time, it's still very early. Yes, it was barely 20 years ago. So it's premature to make a judgment on if this experiment can work. This is one of the opinions, but of course, I mean, 20 years, so many things have happened in the European Union that we still have to wait and see what's going on. When the European Union was in its uh, earlier years, it seems like there was a lot of money coming from the rich countries to help the poor countries. And Spain and Portugal and Italy and Greece had this feeling that, hey, free money, and and money was coming in. And it was kind of like, use it or lose it. Uh, Francisco, there was a lot of money coming in, was that a gift or is now there a reality? I, I think it was a big mistake from the central government in Europe. Money was coming and nobody was taking care of what we were doing with that money. So I think that's the problem. We have to give this back. So that was not a gift. That was a, a low-interest loan that was thought of as a gift? Not that low. So uh, it was an interest loan, but the was, people were spending it like it was a gift. Yes. The, I mean, there was the problem was people that were just spending it without a reason. It's like... Because I remember there were scaffolds everywhere. Everything was being built and rebuilt, and it was like free money from Europe. And now it's time to give back. And now the reality. Uh, Federico, the big news, of course, is Brexit, and Britain has voted to leave the European Union. My hope is that now Europe may have a more focused 
tightly knit group that they can learn from this experience and build on. But the refugee problem and the immigrants, how's the feeling about that in Spain? Personally, as a European citizen, as a Spaniard, I really think that uh, life is a boomerang, is an ethical boomerang, you know. We were Spaniards. We were those refugees in the 1930s. We had to go. Some countries were friendly with us, other countries were not so friendly, you see. And now, I personally think that this is a time for us to help the others. Jorge, when we think about refugees, in the headlines is refugees from the, the tragedy in Syria. But I know in Spain, a big deal is just people coming from North Africa. Oh, yeah. And that's mm. really the immigrant challenge I think Spain faces now. Yeah, but that is not new. We have had that for many, many years. And, you know, I mean, the distance, geographical distance between North of Africa mm-hmm. and the South of Spain is really short. So they believe... You, you can see. You can yeah. see Africa from Actually, Gibraltar. Yeah, you can see. When right. the day is clear, you can see from Gibraltar. And uh, they think it's so easy to cross there, but the streams are really strong. So many people, I mean, if we get a thousand, they get to the other side, to our side, you have no idea how many lives are down there. Is that right? Lost in the the bottom of the ocean, yeah. So every night in the darkness, boats are coming across with people from Africa. Yeah, that's right. Federico, what kind of stresses is this putting on Spanish economy and and what fears is it bringing Spanish workers to have all of these uh, people coming with no jobs and no papers from from Africa? Yeah, there is... um well, there's a problem of, of a bureaucracy, as usual, you know, because some of those owners of those farms and those uh, lands in southern Spain, they are ready to, to help those people and they need workers, you see. But bureaucracy is so slow, you know, that it becomes mm-hmm. a problem to legalize all that. At the same time, it happens everywhere, you know, that those immigrants, they come and they do the jobs that other Spaniards don't want to do. So there's a kind of social hypocrisy about that. Our travel with Rick Steves guides to Spain are Francisco Gloria, Jorge Roman, and Federico Garcia Barroso. They're here to help you plan a memorable getaway to Spain at 877-333-RICK. And Thomas is on the line in Parker, Colorado. Thomas, thanks for your call. Hola, Rick. Hola. I'm curious what uh, role the Spanish monarchy has in uh, governing uh, modern-day 21st century Spain. They just play a symbolic role. They are our best cultural ambassadors, our figureheads. Best? Yeah, uh, yeah, the best ones. Best you got. Yeah, (laughs) but they don't have the power. They don't have the power, and uh, all the national heritage, all those buildings that belong to the royal family, now they belong to the people, and we let them to have those buildings in a kind of perpetual use. But they are not the owners of this legacy anymore, as they were before. So they really are basically um, show people for the brand of Spain? Exactly. Figureheads. But the downside, Francisco, can the royal family have a scandal that, that puts a bad, a, bad, a, bad, a black eye on yes. the Spanish image? Yes. Can they? Well, they, don't they have? <laughs> I mean, Let's we, talk about the scandals. What's we, been going on in the last decade with your royal family? Oh, everything. We had our former king, all of these sexual scandals. The mistresses and the lovers are everywhere. So that was one. Then the son-in-law, he has stolen so much money. So the royal family right now is not very well seen. We were quite quite shocked uh, just a short time ago. It was about three years ago when suddenly, in a very unexpected way, uh, the former king, Juan Carlos, abdicated, just gave his crown to his son, Philip VI. Right. That was really shocking, you know, because we, we are used to see how those kings, they want to die in bed, still being the king right. so of the nation. And Philip, Felipe, our king now, mm-hmm. he's got still that 
good reputation, you see. Oh, so Juan Carlos was so riddled with scandals, he decided, I better just pass the throne to my son. Well, actually, it was a mother queen, you know, who is actually a very smart woman, Sophia. She said, this is a time for our son, and that is what happened. Okay. And yeah. is this new Philip, is he scandal-free, or is he a scandal He's scandal-free. He's scandal-free. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. there's a new beginning, a blank slate. <laughs> there's hope. <laughs> this is Travel there's with Rick hope. Steves. We're talking Spain with three Spanish guides, Jorge Roman, Francisco Gloria, and Federico Garcia Barroso. Susan's calling in from Lodi in California. Hi, Susan. Hi. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> well, thanks for your call. What Do you have a question or a comment for our Spanish guides? Yes, I would like to go back to Spain, but uh, I'd like to be a little bit more prepared. Are they still practicing siesta? Are they still practicing siesta? <laughs> That's an interesting issue. Um, if, um, what's the latest on the great siesta, if, uh, taking well, a nap in the middle of the day? Yes, if we can. If we can, we can take a smooth siesta. And then after that, we are ready for a crazy fiesta. <laughs> oh, the siesta and then the fiesta. <laughs> Jorge, what are, the, what are the dynamics, Jorge, of this big societal decision? Should Spain as an economy still have a siesta? Which means really go home at lunchtime from work and stay for a few hours and then right. come back at four o'clock and carry on. Isn't yeah, that's it? right. I mean, we are Mediterraneans. That's the way it's being always there like that, you know. And especially in the summer when it's really hot in the middle of the day, you really need to either keep continuing working indoors or mm-hmm. just go home and have a, after your lunch, a little nap, you know, a power nap to recover. If you go to Sevilla, for instance, it's going to be really, really hot, about mm-hmm. 120, believe me, 120 mm-hmm. on the streets. So, Business, they do close at one, and they reopen at six in the middle of the summer. So they need those mm. five hours because you cannot walk on the streets. It's absolutely impossible. On the other side, you go to the north, and it's cooler, it's fresher, and then they have just like a couple of hours break from two until four. I remember stepping out of my hotel, and I kind of laughed. I felt like I was walking into a hairdryer. It was, <laughs> <laughs> it was just like, are you kidding me? Am I supposed to go sightseeing this stuff? And uh, I think there's even been change. I, I understand the, the bullfights have been moved to a little later in the, in the evening now than they were in the past to it's accommodate places, the yeah. heat. Yeah, they have is, been is moved from five happening? until six. Five was the traditional yeah. time for bullfighting. Right. Now it's six. In the south, they've got canvas roofs over the streets. That's the way they do it. I mean, that's the only way you know that stores are still open and people are shopping, trying to avoid that heat. That is heat. that heat changing these days? or is it Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's getting worse because of global warming. Oh. Susan, when you go yes. to Spain, have you, know, have you traveled in the north and the south of Spain? Yes. And how did you handle the heat? Well, actually, we went to a lot of little cafes uh, on the street with umbrellas. We were under those for quite a bit, and we took our time eating, which was very hard to get used to, but... We did it. A nice slow lunch is a good way. And then it's refreshing when finally the sun sun is lower in the sky and it is uh, survivable. I think it's more important to travel in shoulder season if you can. And the reality is in Spain there's a lot of pressure for people to work through the day. It's more efficient on paper. But the reality is if you are outdoors during the middle of the day in the summer, it's, it's almost untenable. All right, Susan. Thanks for your call. Thank you. And Phyllis is calling in Damat in Indiana. Hi, Phyllis. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. My daughter and I have traveled a lot, but this will be our first trip to Spain. We have about a week to spend there. Should we see Madrid and Barcelona, or should we just focus on one city? Or are there other places we should not miss? So this is your first time in Spain, and you have one one week. 
Yes, right. Ooh, this is a very interesting... There's a million different good answers. I'm going to let each of our guides uh, explain if they were a private guide for an American flying in for their first time and they had a week and they didn't want to go crazy, what would they right. What would they cover? Very briefly, Jorge, uh, what would you recommend? Focus in Madrid and Barcelona. Madrid and Barcelona. Focus you, in those two. Those two. So you'd have three nights in each spot and two full days with the data Correct. transfer. And would you fly or take the train? Between. It's not worth flying. Just take the train. Yeah, hop the train. on the train. The train yeah. is the bullet train, and I really just enjoyed being on that bullet train from Madrid to Barcelona. Mm-hmm. How many hours does it take? It's two and a half hours to direct. Two and a half hours. So yeah, it mean, takes you two and a half hours to go to the airport and get correct. onto the plane. Yeah, it took the worst of my so life. You might as well take, you go there and fly. Take know? take that train, Phyllis. Uh, Federico, no. what would you do for a week? Yeah, uh, my suggestion is to be in Madrid. We are the epicenter of the whole Iberian Peninsula, and with that fantastic train, we really have the most modern fleet of high-speed trains in Europe. Uh, You can go anywhere. You can go to Barcelona, you can go to southern Spain, Seville, Mm -hmm. Córdoba, you see. Uh, So the best location will be Madrid, and from there you choose, and you go everywhere in half time. That's a good point, because you've got to be careful, Phyllis, not to fall into the American trap of trying to do too much. I, I would right. I would propose you try to find a couple more days, frankly, um, mm, yeah. but with the seven days. But if you're limited to seven days, remember, as Jorge said, two and a half hours you can get to Barcelona, but two and a half hours you can also get to Sevilla, and a stop on the way is Córdoba. Mm-hmm. So you could check your bag okay. at, the, at the train station in Córdoba and spend the better part of a day in Córdoba and then finish in Sevilla. And remember, you can fly home from Sevilla. Something very important to remember is you can fly open jaws. You could fly into Madrid right. and home from Barcelona. You could even fly into Barcelona and home from Sevilla. Mm-hmm. If you had nine days, that would be great. Yeah. Barcelona, Madrid with a side trip to Toledo, and then finish down in Sevilla. Now, Francisco, you live up in the north in Navarre, <laughs> in Pamplona. What would you recommend for Phyllis if she has a week? Okay, this hurts <laughs> to say, <laughs> but if you're only going to be one week, I would do Barcelona, Madrid. But if you have more days, like an extra week, come all the way to the north, to the Basque Country area, which is very relaxing and very green, much fresher if you come in the summertime. The weather is very nice up there. Uh, we don't have such high temperatures, so you're going to make a very long day. You know, you're going to be able to be on the streets all day long. It's, just, it's perfect. You know, you had a famous dictator in Spain a few years ago. What was his name? Franco. Franco. Mm-hmm. And uh, <laughs> I understand he had a favorite vacation destination. It's San Sebastian. San Sebastian, it's the most beautiful city in the north of Spain. So that's the most beautiful resort city in Basque. In the Basque country, country. yes. Beautiful beach, coastal place, a little bit decadent. It's uh, elegant. And the tapas. And oh, <laughs> the tapas. Well, we call them pinchos. The Basque Country, what can I say? The Basque Country is the food capital of Spain, and tapas are the most important thing. They were created there in San Sebastian, and those counters are like miracles. I mean, So that means you go into a bar, and uh, this can be all day long, and they've got, it's looked like they're waiting for a, a hundred people to come in and have a buffet lunch, but it's just waiting for anybody to straggle in, and you have an amazing variety of different tapas, and then on a blackboard are the tapas that are not on display and pre-cooked, but they'll cook yeah. for you at your order. Yeah, they're called pinchos calientes, and those are amazing. I mean, the pinchos calientes, those are little, like, prize-winning morsels. Yes. And uh, what, what's one, like, change your life, pinchos to calientes? Me, uh, I love the octopus. It's yeah, uh, yeah. American because of the octopus. Oh, no, no, no. Give it a try. <laughs> it's a, with a little bit of paprika, the thick salt. But what about spider crab? Spider crab is also oh. very good. Jorge, if you go up to uh, San Sebastian, what pinchos would you be looking for? 
Any of them. <laughs> Any of them. Just it's, looking at the country it makes just like my mouth watering. It's you like a kid time. in a candy shop, really. Oh, that's correct, yeah. You, know? you couldn't say it better, yeah. I would just say to all our listeners, if you really want to lose weight, just go to Finland. Please do not come to, <laughs> do not come to Spain. Okay? Do not come to Spain because it's, that's a sin, you know. That's, you are in the wrong destination, you see. It's such, <laughs> there's such a variety of fresh fish, uh, meat, delicious vegetables, you know. I mean, everywhere. I love the, uh, there's a lot of um, short men in Spain with big bellies. And yeah. somebody told oh. me those, those be- there's a name for this. The, the, um, yeah, the curve of felicity, if I'm not wrong. You see. <laughs> what I does mean, that mean, li- literally? That means that when you see a um, belly and chubby man, that relates to happiness. You know? <laughs> <laughs> that, how do you say that in Spanish? La curva. La curva de la felicidad. So the man has a curve of happiness. It's happiness, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Phyllis, thanks. I hope that gives you some ideas. Yes, you gave me a lot to think about. Oh, so thank you very yeah. much. Have a great time. Thank you. Our tourism experts from Spain are Madrid-based Federico Garcia Barroso and Jorge Roman and Francisco Claria, who lives in Pamplona in northeastern Spain. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Jack's calling in from Maricopa in Arizona. Hey, Jack. Talking about Spain, ironically enough, my wife and I had been there several many years ago and enjoyed the hotels, the Panadores and uh, tapas bars are just the greatest thing since canned beer. (laughs) (laughs) That's a terrific way to spend an afternoon without any problem whatsoever. If anybody has free time, the Dali Museum is, is certainly an interesting side trip. He was an interesting guy. That would be a side trip from Barcelona up to... Yes, sir. Um, yes. And that's uh, Dali's uh, birthplace and his mausoleum. Yeah, you have two places in right. two Dali museums. One is in Figueras, Figueres. his birthplace, and the old theater. He bought the old theater and reconverted in a museum while he was still alive. And then he has in Caracas, where he was living with Gala, his wife. There's another little museum in Caracas, there. Caracas, yeah. Yeah, and Caracas is further up in the coast. Both of them are just beautiful. If you were very busy and you had a rented car, you could visit both of them on a day, but it does take a little driving. Yeah, that's right. Correct. Okay, Jack. And about the Paradors, how was your experience in the Paradors? Well, I can remember several different buildings that had been converted into hotels. A nunnery, if you will. It was an old hospital that had been turned into a marvelous place. And then in Toledo, there's one uh, with a view right over the river, looking back at the city, that is worth the price of admission all by itself. So these Paradors are historic buildings that have been renovated and turned into hotels so they can earn their keep, essentially. And uh, they're, like you said, mansions and magnificent palaces and old abbeys with great views and lots of history. Some of them, people actually visit them to see the the historic value of it. Federico, are these uh, subsidized by the government in any way? Yes, that is what we call Paradores Nacionales. And those are um, castles, uh, fortresses, um, convents, uh, nunneries. And they are actually really, in my opinion, you you get one of the best, one of the best ways to to visit Spain. And they are not really, really expensive. It's a top-end hotel at at an expensive price, but a good value price. Absolutely, absolutely. Absolutely. They are marvelous places, and they have good meals. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a bargain. You know, Jack, I can remember when I was, back in my old days, when I was doing uh, youth hostel tours in a minibus, and we would sleep in the youth hostel, 
but we would go to the Perador for breakfast just for we could. <laughs> it was a cheap breakfast, and we had elegant service and beautiful tableware, and uh, just had a taste of that sort of the peasants sneak into the palace. And you can do that. You can go to a Perador for for dinner or for That's lunch right. and have that experience without actually sleeping there. One of the highlights of the Parados are the gastronomy. The gastronomy, yeah. and it would be representative of of that region. Jack, thanks so much for your call. Certainly welcome. Thanks a lot. Jorge Roman, Francisco Gloria, Federico Garcia Barroso, it's so much fun to be with you and and think about the dreams of our listeners and share some of your experience with them so they can have the best possible time in Spain. Gracias. Thank Gracias. you. Gracias, Rick. Our next guest believes you can feel right at home in even the most unfamiliar places. In fact, your travels can be the best teacher you've ever had. Nikos Hadjikostas has written what he calls a new philosophy of world travel, which looks at what it's like to travel a world without borders. He joins us next on Travel with Rick Steves. When he was in his mid-30s, Nikos Hadjikostas gave up the comfort of a good job in his family's media company on Cyprus. He decided it's time to take off and see the world. A two-year trip turned into more than six years as he immersed himself in new countries and cultures from New York to Mexico, South America, Australia, Asia, the Middle East, and Africa. He found the world to be a lot larger and more interesting than he ever imagined. And yet, it still somehow all felt like home. Nikos draws on the philosopher spirit of his Greek ancestors with the curiosity of an explorer as he wrote about his adventures in his new book called Destination Earth. Nikos, welcome to Travel with Rick Steves. Does that sound about right to you? Actually, when I started traveling, I did not see myself traveling for six and a half years. My original plan was to travel for something less than two years, but uh, the journey ended up lasting uh, much longer because I miscalculated the size of the earth and the fact that I ended up traveling much more slowly in order to allow things to sink in and to delve deeper into cultures. Slowly, slowly, while I traveled, I started reading more and more about cultures while I traveled. So while I traveled, let's say, around the U.S. for six months, I was reading books about American history, about the different landscapes and the deserts and the the culture of America and American Indians and so on. And uh, I decided that I didn't know anything about the world. And I tried to slowly, slowly delve into deeper into cultures and countries by reading more and more while I travel. By the way, your name is Nikos Hadjikostas, and uh, I, I don't speak any Arabic, but I do know when somebody who is Muslim <laughs> goes to Mecca, they're, for the rest of their life, they're called a haji. And is well, your I'm name uh, Hadjikostas? Yeah. Is that anything about that? Because that's a big deal well, if you're in Islam. Well, it's interesting. Uh, Hajj, uh, Hajj is the pilgrimage to Mecca. Right. And it's not only the pilgrimage to Mecca, actually, in Christian lands, especially in the Orthodox Christian tradition, and I was born a, a Greek Orthodox, when people visit Jerusalem, they also are considered to have done the Hajj. So one of my uh, forefathers traveled there and probably he put the Hajj in front of his name, but I'm a Christian, I'm not a Muslim. Right, So you, but you had that experience of the pilgrimage, whether it goes to Mecca or to Jerusalem. Correct. One of my favorite travel quotes is from Mohammed 1,500 years ago or something. He said, 
don't tell me how educated you are, tell me how much you've traveled. And my understanding is that one of the rationales for the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca from Muhammad's point of view, was it got you out of your locale and it gave you a better empathy for people who are living in different places and it made you more a broader perspective. And I think that's kind of a, a beautiful byproduct of, of a pilgrimage or of a odyssey like you took for six yes. years. Let me add another quote to your quote. There's a Chinese quote that says, it's better to have traveled a thousand miles than to have read a thousand books. I love this one. (laughs) And how many miles did you travel? (laughs) Much more. Maybe, you know, the circumference of the earth. I don't know. I never calculated that. Well, that was the equivalent of a library then. Now, your book is called (laughs) Destination Earth, A New Philosophy of Travel. What is your travel philosophy that, that you'd like people to understand? Yes. It's not a proper philosophy like Kant or Schopenhauer or Leibniz. You know, I didn't sit down and say I'm going to formulate a philosophy. This is more a real life philosophy in the tradition of the Stoics. They had many life experiences and then they, they sat down to write what they learned from those life experiences. And so the philosophy is a practical one. For example, the magnification. It's how deep do we explore a country. That's the measure of the magnification with which we go deep into a culture. When you travel to a country and when people, you know, ask for advice, I ask them, for how long do you want to travel to Australia? If they tell me three weeks, that's a three-week level of magnification. If they want to travel for three months, that's another level of magnification. And this is an important concept that I had not seen anywhere before. And it was something that preoccupied me throughout my journey. And I said, ah, nobody ever talked about that. So magnification, the other is the wise line. How do you go about exploring a country like, say, Peru, that has different geographical zones? For example, Peru has the desert coastal area, it has the Andes, the mountains, and then it has the tropical area. So I devised a scheme whereby I thought of how do you go about these three areas in order to get a representative cross-section of a country. I also discuss about the relationship of travel with one's life in general the relationship between a travel journey and our life's journey. So this really expects people to think carefully, not to plan every day where they're going to be, but to yes. have a, a big idea of what they want to accomplish. And be mindful that if you if you spend uh, your trip and you see three coastal cities and you miss the interior and you miss the highlands, you're not maximizing the experience. That would be the wise line idea. Yes. Um, and also the magnification it seems to me you tied that in with with luxury, and uh, the luxury might not be a, a five-star hotel, but it, the luxury might be no tight schedule, and the luxury might be connecting with people that lets you get a deeper exploration. Does that relate to magnification? Yes, I, I would say the luxury of freedom, not the luxury of money. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, when you are exploring a country and you, you had planned, let's say, to stay in that country for three weeks, but then you realize that this country has more gifts to give you. Yeah. And you need to, to spend another three weeks in order to truly understand and capture those gifts. Nikos Hadjikostas is our guest from the studios of Sky Radio's Sport FM in Athens. He's written Destination Earth, a thought-provoking declaration of the unity of the human family gleaned from six years of roaming the planet. Nikos blogs in a series called Tuesday Letters on his website. 
We have a link to it in this week's show details at ricksteves.com slash radio. Nikos, I, I read in your book that you figure travel destroys uh, sort of the notion of conventional ownership. That's a pretty radical thought. Yes, we move from the little ownership of our little piece of land and our neighborhood and the little things we buy, and we relinquish that in order to go to the big ownership, which is the whole world. We own every lake, every mountain, every shade of every tree, every culture, every achievement ever created on the planet. And all these things belong to us, but we forget this. The pyramid belongs to us. The Acropolis belongs to us. We can enjoy it like the ancients did. So everything belongs to us. And this is the grand ownership. And that's the meaning also of destination Earth. We travel to the whole Earth. And at the same time, we feel that this Earth belongs to us. We own the Earth. You know, I love the idea that we own the Earth collectively. And it's clear when you read through your book and you think about your adventure, you approach it as as one big country. It was also interesting how you related your trip to Magellan. Can you explain what Magellan, the great uh, explorer 500 years ago, had to do with your trip? Yes, he, he was the first one to explore the Earth. And he discovered that the Earth was three times the size people thought it was at that time. And I felt like I was also rediscovering the Earth in some way, uh, like Magellan. While you travel around the world, you are also time travel. So when you go to the Solomon Islands or Papua New Guinea, you go to the past of humanity. And you, when you go to medieval Fez in Morocco, you go to the Middle Ages. And in the same way, when you go to Japan, you go to the future of humanity. I mean, Japan is very advanced. You, one could say it's the only country that lives in the 22nd century. So you kind of time travel. And the most interesting experiences of, of this uh, time travel, we are in Papua New Guinea and the Solomon Islands, where people still live in the Stone Age, in little huts. They sleep with their pigs, and I slept in a hut next to the pigs. They put them in at night because they are afraid of pig thieves. What's the importance of a pig in Papua New Guinea? Well, it's it's the indication of one's wealth. <laughs> the more pigs one has, it's like the more uh, houses or the more money one has in the West. So it's an indication <laughs> so of So what's your bank account? Wealth. Let me talk about, let, yes. me, let me count my pigs. Nikos, you were talking about the, the crush of the modern world in Tokyo, and I, I've, I've been there in Tokyo thinking I'm in, I'm in the future where everything is, people are just frantically running around. And then you can go to, to biblical times in a place like Ethiopia. Talk about your experience in Ethiopia going back yes. in time. Yes, in Lalibela. I have a beautiful picture in the book from Lalibela. It's like those Hollywood movies uh, of uh, the time of Christ. It's amazing. They have these rock-hewn churches in Lalibela, and they are still functional. They do services there, and when you attend one of those services, people wear traditional attire. It's like really going back 2,000 years ago. The sounds, the smells, the, the faces of people, it's, it's really amazing. I had one of the most beautiful experiences in Palestine where I went to this amazing monastery that goes back 1,500 years, and it was enlivened with Ethiopian Christians who made their pilgrimage all the way to there, and it was like going back in time. So you've seen vivid 
Christian scenes. Also, according to your book, amazing experiences with, with Hindu rituals on the river and Tibetan monks high in the mountains. But what, what sticks out in your mind about that? Well, what I love about the rituals of the Hindus and the Buddhists is that they are, are based on many deep philosophical ideas. Uh, for example, the idea of that everything is impermanent. You see that in these rituals. They, they create a mandala. I saw this. They create a mandala with the sand in Tibet, and they work on it for one week, and after they finish it, they destroy it. We're hearing how travel changed the world for Nikos Hadjikostas right now on Travel with Rick Steves. He's the author of Destination Earth and recently was a keynote speaker on the future of travel for an Airbnb conference. We're at 877-333-7425. And Diane from Independence, Missouri is on the line to talk to Nikos. Hi, Diane. Hi, Rick. Listening, I'm fascinated and I have a million questions. I would love to spend an afternoon with Nikos. Um, I know that you write about... One of the reasons that you write is to awaken the latent world traveler within your reader. As a retired teacher who feels like she was born to travel, this is a goal of mine, is to help other people, especially those who have kind of unlived lives and and dreams that they haven't fulfilled as they're getting into middle age and past, and their children are growing, and they are empty nesters, to try to help them to travel. Do you believe that every person is a latent world traveler? Yes, I do. Travel is the ultimate university, and you learn more by traveling than by any other activity because travel brings together theory and practice and harmonizes life with knowledge. Knowledge is a dead thing if you don't harmonize it with life. And all of us have this urge to learn. And nothing brings it out better than traveling. Wait a minute. Harmonize life with knowledge. That is really, really powerful because there's a lot of very smart people who have never traveled and their wisdom would be invigorated if they could actually sit on the Ganges River with a bunch of people or climb a mountain or or hang out with people in Papua New Guinea. Yes, life and, it's an, and it's never late to travel. Even if you haven't traveled and you are 70 years old, 80 years old, it's you never can too still late travel. to have a happy childhood, and it's yes. never too late <laughs> to travel. Hey, uh, Diane, you're a teacher, and Nikos, I, f- I feel like you're a teacher, and when I cross the border and they say, what's your occupation? I say, teacher. Uh, we try to inspire people to travel, and, and Diane, I, I would imagine you recognize the value of that as a, as a school teacher. It really saddens me to be aware of the value of travel and to think that a lot of people are more afraid about travel than they need to be. Nikos, you've spent six years on the road, and when I hear somebody, something you know just happened in London or something just happened in Paris, which is tragic, that's terrorist, and people say, oh, I'm not going to travel anymore, it seems yes, to me... this is wrong. This well, is what wrong. is your take on that? Because you've well, been there. Yes, the world is safe. That's the rule. That's what happens 99.99% of the times. The war zones, we know them, we avoid them. When you are outside the war zones and you travel, you are safe. When you travel, you visit places in which people live their normal lives like you live your normal life in your own place. So 
there are no terrorists in uh, Buenos Aires. There are no terrorists in Beijing. In 99.9% of the world's cities, there are no wars. There are no attacks. These are very, very rare things. And the reason we give uh, so much attention to these things is because they are so rare. But I, I do think there's a, an irony that if people do not travel, the world could become a less safe place. Part of that is because when you travel, you get a positive attitude about people. In your travels, do you feel the world is a is a generally friendly and hospitable place? Yes. I, I think that the world, people, humanity, is a, an open-hearted, friendly, hospitable, helpful species. And if we had an extraterrestrial visiting the Earth after having visited other civilizations, these are the main attributes <laughs> that he would have emphasized after having visited the Earth. I love that. A Martian lands on our planet, and the first thing yes. he'll say is, my, these people are friendly. You know, people would disagree with you, Nikos, but I would imagine most of those people have not traveled very much. Correct. Actually, Rick, we are all extraterrestrials on Earth because we have not traveled around the Earth and we know so little about it. So one of the things that we one experiences when one begins to travel around the world is that he has been an extraterrestrial for so many years. <laughs> <laughs> well, Diane, thank you for your call. I hope that uh, you have uh, gratifying teaching. Thank you, thank you. And I hope that he continues to talk about the transformative power of travel. You know, that is because the mark I of a good travel. Trip. As a, as a spiritual Correct. practice. Thanks, Diane, for your call. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Nikos Hadjikostas. His book is Destination Earth, A New Philosophy of Travel. We may say here, uh, Rick, uh, concerning the transformer development of travel, that there are two travels going on at the same time. It's the outer journey and the inner journey. And the outer journey is the catalyst for the inner journey. While you move outwards, you are being moved inwards. That's important. And then you talk about the, the mode of becoming? Yes. What is the mode of becoming? Is that when you free your inner world to connect with the outer world, or, or what is the mode of becoming? Well, the, the mode of becoming is the opposite of the mode of doing. The mode of doing is the mode of life in which our everyday life is immersed. We are busy doing things all the time. But much more important or equally important is the mode of becoming. When you do things, not in order to do things, but in order to become something different from what you were originally. That's the mode of becoming when you are being transformed. And when you travel, you are immersed in the mode of becoming in contrast to the mode of doing. So I give a nice example. I like it very much. Let's say you sit and you do nothing on a bench in a park in Chengdu, China. And you do absolutely nothing and you just observe the Chinese playing, walking about and uh, discussing and dancing and so on. By doing nothing, you learn so many things that after an hour of sitting on the bench, you are not the same person anymore. So you have not been doing anything, but you were being transformed. So you can sit down and write five pages of what you've learned by doing nothing this a single hour. So this is the mode of, of becoming, is this mode during which you are being changed without necessarily doing anything. Nikos Hadjikostas, the book is Destination Earth. Thank you so much for inspiring us to get more out of our travels. 
Thank you for inviting me here, Rick. Thank you very much. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by Tim Tatton, Sarah McCormick, and Isaac kaplan Woolner. Thanks to Digital One in Portland, Oregon, and to Pantelis Kalazidis at the Sky Group's 94.6 Sport FM in Athens for their help this week. You can join us on the air as a caller during our next recording sessions. Find out what we're talking about and how you can participate in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. Europe Through the Back Door teaches the skills of smart travel. Travel as a political act adds meaning to the journey. And Rick Steves' best-selling country, city, and pocket guidebooks cover every corner of Europe. To learn more, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.